Welcome to the sermon podcast of Gamble Street Baptist Church, Fort Worth, Texas. Gamble Street Baptist Church has been sharing the gospel for over 100 years. This podcast includes sermons from our traditional Sunday morning service and our contemporary services on Sunday evenings. We hope God speaks to you through this sermon. I want to talk a little bit this morning about ordinances. Um, We as Baptists say that there are two. Separate Baptists back in the 18th century said that there were eight of them. No, nine of them. Nine rites, nine ordinances. Most traditions will say that there are two, that is baptism and the Lord's Supper. But you know, if you take that word ordinance, literally it means a command or an order. How many ordinances are there, for example, in the gospel accounts that Jesus gave? Well, not including the parables, because there are a lot of commands in the parables, but just when he looked his disciples in the eyes and he said, do this. I may be off, but I think I counted about 69 in the Gospels. We've highlighted two of them because it's very clear their significance in the Christian walk. Baptism, and we're going to celebrate that ordinance the last Sunday of this month. We're having three, at least three, but I know of three that we're going to have that are going to go under the water and back up to signify that they're Christ's followers. What's the other ordinance that we will celebrate on that same day? Because it's the last Sunday of the month. The Lord's Supper, we come Eucharistically, Thanksgiving to the table, and we share together. You know, it reminds me of when I was baptized, and yes, I remember it. It was 65 65 years ago. I was negative 20. No, I was was seven years old. And L. Don Miley baptized me, and I've shared this with you before, at Ozark Baptist Church in Ozark, not Missouri, but Alabama. And he gave me a baptismal verse. I don't know how many of y'all had a baptismal verse given to you by your pastor or whoever baptized you, but he gave me a baptismal verse. And it was 1 Corinthians 16, 2. Paul is exhorting the Corinthians to give because they've made a pledge to do so. And he's reminding them, he says, on the first day of the week, let every person then set aside in the storehouse to put in the storehouse as God has then prospered that person individually to set aside in the storehouse so that there won't be any gatherings when I come. In other words, no last minute having to scramble and to, uh, to give what you've pledged to give. That verse has stuck with me all of my life, all of my Christian walk. He, he wanted me to value the importance of an, an ordinance of the church. It really is. Jesus said, freely you have received, freely what? Give. Now, of course, he was talking about not just giving in the offering plate, but that's an ordinance. And in so doing, what he did is he connected the, the ordinance of baptism with the liturgy of the church and another ordinance of the church and applied it in a very practical way, and it's made a, a big difference in my life. You know, Linda Leach put it this way, 
Bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse, all your money, talents, time, and love. You notice that it's not just money. Consecrate them all upon the altar while your Savior from above sweet, speaks sweetly. Trust me, try me, prove me, saith the Lord of hosts, and see what? If a blessing, unmeasured blessing, I will not pour out on thee. And that's true. If we give, God blesses that giving. But it's not only for us. He not only blesses us, but just as with Abraham, when he was Abram, was called to go to a place he knew not, and he followed, God told him, I will bless you in order that you, what, might be a blessing to others. You know, as we look in this ninth week of our examination of worship, we've discovered again that God intimately invites us and beckons us to come walk with him. That's, that's really what worship, I think, is. And we're not to be casual about it. We don't just casually enter into his presence. We enter into the presence of the almighty I am, the creator God, as we've said so many times before. And in order to come into his presence in a clean way, we confess our sin, and he promises that he will do what? He will forgive us of our sin and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And then he commissions us to go forth in daily worship and walk with him out there by serving him, by telling others. And we need to remember that holy means holy. We are commissioned as a holy people. We're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and we're to live holy lives. And it doesn't mean that we're to be dour about it doesn't mean that we have to go around with long faces and ashes on our head. Jesus said, don't do that. No, show people that you're glad, that you're joyful. And he renews us and he restores in us the joy of his salvation so that we might be able to do that. And that, that is then an act of worship as we go forth and we share that joy. As we do, God's word then guides us in every step of that worship. And as we have seen every time we come together in corporate worship here, the liturgy of the worship service is guided by God's word, and it ought to be that way as we go forth in life. The liturgy of our life ought to be guided by God's word. Our most fulfilling act, and the thing that is most pleasing to him, then, is to respond in joy and, as we said last week, in continuous song. To sing a new song every day and to sing it anew beyond this place each and every day. Sing with all creation and lift up his name and praise him in such a way that we bless his holy name. And it brings us today then to looking at really what we did as we passed the offering plate, as we gave to the Lord in thanks. It's more than just a liturgical act. It's more than just an ordinance that we observe here. In so doing, we express that God is good. We thank him for his mercy. And we acknowledge that he performs mighty wonders even today in blessing us. And we demonstrate our thanks by verbal praise and then giving in the offering plate and then sacrificial action. And that's what the psalmist talks about today in Psalm 107. Uh, you heard Joel begin with a reading from Psalm 105, and there's a connection there. I'm not going to read all 43 verses. That would take about a third of the sermon time. I'm just going to look at about four verses, 
and then talk about the significance of the whole psalm. So listen to the word of the Lord from verse 1 and 2, and then again in the middle, the very middle of the psalm, as it kind of reaches an apex in verses 21 and 22. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from the hand of the adversary. And then in the middle of the psalm, he says, let them give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness, that is his mercy, and for his wonders to the sons of men. Let them also offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of his works with joyful singing. You know, this is the beginning of the fifth book of Psalms. Scholars divide the Psalms into five books. It's the beginning of the last book, Psalm 105 through 150, which includes a variety of topics. It's hard to categorize them, but many of these Psalms have to do with coping with life's difficulties in everyday workday life and God's oversight and his calling us to moral accountability. And that is partly what this Psalm does. Some would say that this Psalm 107 is stitched together with the previous book because they see Psalm 105, Joel, 106 and 107 as a kind of unit. That in Psalm 105, God expresses his desire in choosing and caring for Israel. Then they're disobedient in Psalm 106. Then God then, even though he waits patiently, feels, knows that he must hold them to accountability and he punishes them. And then Psalm 107, is a psalm of reclamation, reclaiming, and restoring Israel. The author, we don't know who it was, probably post-exilic. When you look at the whole psalm, there are some post-exilic overtones to it, that is, after the Babylonian captivity. It's a liturgical hymn of thanksgiving. Five times in this psalm, we are exhorted to give thanks. In the first verse, there's a command that's direct, and then four other times... It is an indirect command. Oh, let them give thanks. And there are three reasons in the psalm repeatedly that we're told for our giving thanks. Why do we thank the Lord? Because he's good. He is kind. He's the great benefactor, the giver of good things. So he's good. Secondly, he's merciful. And his mercy endures what? Forever. His everlasting hesed, his love is forever. And he loves us by forgiving us as well. And then thirdly, because he performs wonders and miracles. He demonstrated that in the life of Israel, and he continues to do it today. If we will only strip our secular eyes that are scaled over and we watch the Lord at work, we see that he still does marvelous things amongst his people. So we do it because he's good and kind. We do it because he's merciful and he loves and he forgives. And we then give thanks because of the wonders that he performs. And in this psalm, it's kind of a mixture of backgrounds. Some of it sounds like it deals with the exodus, and I think it does. Israel in distress as they wander in the desert. Yet there are other parts that seem to be post-exilic where he's gathering the uh, tribes back together, the southern tribes back to, to Judah after the Babylonian captivity. And then there are other parts of it that seem to be addressing near the end the stage of the late monarchy when the rulers were false shepherds and oppressed the people and God vindicated the needy. So there are different backgrounds. I want to look at three things out of this psalm today and pretty much work through the psalm, the 43, most of the 43 verses. The first of those is 
I believe the psalmist is, is telling us God not only did deliver, but God still can deliver in every difficult situation. And for this, we should give him thanks. No matter what you're going through in life, no matter what tomorrow holds, no matter what anxieties you're dealing with, God can overcome those difficulties in your life and walk with you. I think a second thing is that our thanks should express humble gratitude and trust. And sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes our thanks is rather superficial, and I'm going to talk about that near the end of the message. But our thanks should express a deep, humble gratitude for what he does, and at the same time anticipate what he's going to do with great trust. And then finally, and it comes to going from thanks to giving. Thanksgiving is going from thanks to giving. There is, there is a requirement of us when we give thanks actually to do it sacrificially in a way that it produces sacrificial giving. And we often talk about sacrificial giving. We talk about what we put in the offering plate, but it's, it's far beyond that. It has to do with who we are. Let's look at the first of those. Can God deliver today in difficult circumstances? Well, of course he can. And he, the psalmist then describes four situations here where God has done that in the past. When they were aimlessly wandering in the wilderness. So you obviously see then the Exodus context. And in the brutal captivity from which they are gathered. I think that's probably when they were in the Babylonian captivity. Second situation. A third situation is when, the, when a person's soul is sick and full of guilt and despair, God can deliver. And that really doesn't have anything to do with either of those situations. It has to do with, with our sin and our guiltiness and the despair and despondency that we experience as a result. And then finally, he talks about the violent tumult of everyday life. And everyday life can be tumultuous and, in fact, sometimes quite violent, and he can walk with us in that situation. The first of those is... When they walked aimlessly in the desert in verses 4 through 9, the Old Testament background is very clear. This is obvious when Israel was wandering in the desert after the Exodus for 40 years in the Sinai Peninsula. They wandered and it said they did not find an inhabited city. Their soul fainted in the desert. They were hungry. They were thirsty. They had needs. And there was a remedy to this in verse number 6. It says, then the Lord delivered them from their distress. He did it then. He can do it now. You see, he provided food for them. We know that. He provided manna. He provided quail. Can you imagine providing that to probably, we don't know the exact number of the, the families, but maybe as many as two, two million people, over 600,000 males. He provided water at Marah. He made the water that was bitter sweet at Masa and Meribah. He caused it to come out of the rock on two occasions at least. But most of the water they got was at Kadesh Barnea, where they spent most of the 40 years near that base camp oasis that God provided for them. He did then provide for their needs. He also led them to an inhabited land, you see. They wandered without a habitation to go to, but God had prepared that. There are, in the book of Joshua, over 300 towns and cities that are named. And we know that Joshua then, God then, enabled to conquer 31 of those that are described as splendid and great cities for their habitation. Not only that, but he told 
uh, Israel through Deuteronomy, through the second giving of the law by Moses in that book, in the sixth chapter, that he had already prepared that place for them, that there would be an infrastructure there, an agricultural and domestic infrastructure that was just waiting for them to take possession of. There would be houses there filled with things that they did not fill. There would be wells there that they had not dug. There would be vineyards and olive groves that they had not planted. And he said, when you go in, parenthetically implied, don't feel guilty about this. He explicitly said, when you go in, take possession and enjoy it. Just don't do this. Just don't forget, I'm the one that gave it to you. You see, in this first situation, there's a New Testament parallel. Jesus did the same kind of provision. He provided the bread. He was the two bread that had come down from heaven that gives life, he told them in John 6. Jesus is the living water, just as they got the water at Meribah and Massa. But he said, this, this water will percolate up inside you, and it's a water that never goes away. You'll never be thirsty. It's everlasting. He is also the water of life. Jesus not only gave them their provision, he also provided the way, the direction to a habitated city. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He said, I am the door. I am the way. I am the passage through which you go. I am the narrow gate, you see. And the early Christians, in fact, called themselves people of the what? Of the way. To an inhabited city he has prepared for us in the new Jerusalem. And Zion is the Father's house. And he has prepared that place. There's a modern application of that today. He still does that today. He still can overcome every difficult situation and make provision. In Matthew, the sixth chapter, he says, when you worry about all of these things, about what you eat and what you drink, you know how he ended that portion of the Sermon on the Mount. He said, but as for you, do what? Seek first, what? The kingdom of God and what? His righteousness. And all of these things will be added unto you. At the end of the second covenant in Revelation in the seventh chapter, it's an eternal promise. It says, never again will they go hungry. Never again will they thirst. You see, the sun will no longer beat down on them, nor the scorching heat. For the Lamb is at the center of the throne, and He will be their shepherd, and He will lead them to springs of water. The eternal river of life there at the throne of God. Not only provision today and in eternity, direction. We're told this in the Old Testament. My dad's favorite verse, and for many of you, probably one of yours, Proverbs 3, says, In all your ways, do what? Acknowledge him, and he'll do what? He'll direct your paths. He promises to instruct and to guide us. In Isaiah, he says, I am Jehovah. I am your God. I'm the covenant God who teaches you the right way, who leads you in the way that you should go and what you should do. Guide me. O oh, thou great Jehovah, pilgrim through this barren land. I am weak, but thou art mighty. Hold me by thy powerful hand. Bread of heaven, bread of heaven, feed me till I want no more. Open now the crystal fountain whence the healing stream doth flow. Let the fire and cloudy pillar lead me all the journey through. Strong deliverer, strong deliverer, be thou still my strength and shield. I think William Williams had it right. Secondly, we look at another situation in verses 10 through 16. He can still deliver this way today. In the brutal captivity of darkness, in the Old Testament, the situation is pretty obvious. In the Babylonian captivity, they were there all together. 
You take the outside dates, 70 years. Because they had rebelled, God had put them there. He was the God of the captivity. He had humbled their heart with great labor, it says in this psalm. They had become prisoners in misery and chains, and in darkness they labored in the shadow of death. God had a remedy. It begins all the way back in verse number 3, and then it skips over to 14 and 16. There in verse 16 it says, He delivered them again from their distress. He brought them out of the darkness and out of the shadow of death, and He broke apart their bonds. He shattered the bronze gates that had enfolded them, that were surrounding them, and He broke the bars of iron. And then He did what in verse 3? He gathered them from the north and the south and the east and the west, and He returned the remnant. In the New Testament, we have a parallel to this. Jesus is the light that is in the darkness. As He's held as a baby in the temple, it is proclaimed He is what? The light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of God's people Israel. When Jesus started His ministry, it was in Galilee, and this was prophesied in the Old Testament, that there would be a great light that would then dawn upon those that lived in the land of darkness, that a light had then arisen in the land of the shadow of death. That was Jesus. He was the light. He came to fulfill in terms of releasing the people from the prison of darkness. He fulfilled Isaiah 61 as he stood there at Nazareth in Luke, the fourth chapter. He said very clearly in fulfillment of that prophecy, he said, I came to release, to, to announce the release of the captives, to set free those who are oppressed. And I have then come to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. That is a reference to the Jubilee year when all would be set free. There's a modern application to this. He can still do that. He can still bring us out of the darkness into his marvelous light, and he can set us free. Jesus is the light of the world, and he continues to be so. He says this to us today, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but he will have the light of life. We heard this morning as we sang, here I am to worship. Didn't the kids do a great job? Amen. Light of the world, you step down into darkness. Open my eyes, let me, let me see beauty that made this heart adore you. Hope of a life spent with you. Here I am to worship. Because Jesus is the light of the world that calls us out of darkness into God's marvelous light, Peter tells us. True disciples, then, are those who abide in Christ's word, he tells us. And that's a promise that we're given today. When we abide in His Word, it tells us that we will know the truth, and the truth will do what? The truth will set us free. And if the Son makes you free, we said this last week, if the Son makes you free, then you are free indeed, and you're free at last. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin in nature's night, thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Ah, Charles Wesley was right. Isn't it amazing? And can it be? Yes, it can be today. He can set us free and draw us out of the darkness into his life. A third situation is found in verses 17 through 22. There's a soul sickness that comes with guilt and despair. The Old Testament situation is kind of hard to pinpoint, but Israel had rebelled and they were punished for their sin. 
And numerous times they had complained in the desert and God punished them. Especially when they complained about this manna that they were eating, they were tired of it. And they complained about Moses' leadership. And then God sent quail, but you know there was the, the sting in the tail. With the, tail, with the quail came the plague against those that were greedy. Miriam rebelled against Moses and God struck her with leprosy. They complained about how much, how much better it was in Egypt and they wanted to go back to the land of, of onions. They wanted to go back to the, 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 the land of fat and plenty and God sent the plague of the fiery serpents among them. So you see there was a kind of distress that in fact God sent them as punishment. They were in despair. The psalmist in 102, at near the end of the fourth book, expresses this kind of abandonment. He feels that God is no longer with him. He's surrounded by his enemies, and he fasts almost to the point of starvation and to death. And this psalmist makes reference to that. You see, foolishly, when they rebelled against God, they starved themselves almost to death. The remedy of this is that God sends his, sends his word in verse number 20. He restored Miriam from her leprosy. And he then healed the, those that were stung or bitten by the fiery serpents. He told Moses to do what? To raise the bronze serpent, and whoever looked on, upon it would be saved. He delivered them from their destructions, and the word that is used in this verse is the pits. And I think I'm not stretching it too much. This may, in fact, be referring to he delivered them from their own self-destruction of guilt and despair. They were in the pits, and then God promised to bear their grief and their affliction. He said, you know, when you feel like this, when you feel afflicted, when you feel guilty, because you are, I have sent a remedy, Isaiah 53. Surely our griefs he himself has borne, and our sorrows he has carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. You see, he sent his son to bear those griefs and the despair and the guilt that we have. In the New Testament, Jesus, for him, one of the central parts of his ministry was healing. He cast out demons, and he healed all who were ill with various diseases. And Matthew, the 8th chapter, says that he did this in order to fulfill, and he quotes that passage from Isaiah 53, which I just quoted, Isaiah 53. The reason he healed was to demonstrate that he could bear their sorrows and their griefs. He gave evidence of his Messiahship to John the Baptist's disciples by pointing to this power that he had to heal and to relieve grief and suffering. You see, the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up. And Jesus did what? He said to Nicodemus, you know, Moses raised the serpent in the desert. There's one coming, and he was referring to himself who must be lifted up, and in the same way when he does, he's not only going to redeem them from physical death, but he's going to give them eternal life to save souls. Jesus, in fact, came to relieve the grief and despair, but to give eternal life, far beyond what Moses could ever promise. And there's a modern application of this. Jesus beckons to us today when we feel this way and we're in despair and grief and despondent, maybe on the verge of depression, he says to us, come to me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He sent his Holy Spirit along with the Father, sending the Holy Spirit as the comforter to bring us comfort in grief and despair. And we're given the promise that Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians as he writes again to that church, that we should praise, give praise to God the Father 
of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort. We should praise him because he comforts us in all our troubles. Why? So that we can be comforted, but also that we might comfort those who are in trouble with the same comfort by which we are comforted. There is a balm in Gilead to make the wounded whole. There is a balm in Gilead to heal the sin-sick soul. Sometimes I feel discouraged, and deep I feel the pain. In prayers, the Holy Spirit revives my soul again. Indeed, there is a balm in Gilead even today. And then we come to the last of these situations, the violent tumult of everyday life in verses 23 through 32. The situation here is he talks about something that's pretty common, you know, those that go down to the sea in ships and then they do their mercantile business. It was an everyday occupational uh, sort of thing, but there was a hazard that went along with it. Here he's talking about as we go out in the everyday life in the secular world, there are hazards out there. This is a great hazard for Jewish merchants because, you know, they were land-pound Jews. It was a fearful thing to go on the sea and to trade. The stormy wind lifted the waves to the heavens and fell to the depths, it says in this psalm, and their hearts melted away. They reeled and they staggered like they were drunk, and their wits had come to their end. And then God stepped in. The psalmist says, and he stilled the storm and he hushed the sea, and then he guided them to a safe haven. There is a New Testament parallel to this that is very obvious. You see, Jesus and the apostles all identify with us. Whenever you go to work tomorrow, Jesus identifies with it. So did Peter, James, and John. Jesus was a tradesman. He was a what? He was a carpenter. Peter, James, and John, and Andrew were what? They were fishermen. They made their living out there on the lake. And probably Thomas, Nathaniel, and Philip were too, because later at the end of the Gospel of John, we see them out there fishing with Peter and, and the others. Matthew was a businessman, a yeah, tax collector. Probably he had a nonprofit. He was working for the government, and he was a businessman. Paul was a what? A tent maker. They identify, you see, with our going into life and the everyday problems that we have. Most of Jesus' parables have some theme of workaday life in them. 32 of the 37 parables recorded in the Gospels contain some kind of work-related activity, and he identifies Jesus' 22 kinds of work in them. There are 25 parables where the theme of the parable rests on the spine, the backbone, the key ingredient is some aspect of work. Jesus is concerned when you go to work tomorrow about how you make it. He's been there. Jesus cares about your safety. He cared about the safety of the disciples. The sea rose, the storm beat against the ship, and the disciples, Lord, don't you care that we're about to die? And he did what? He said two words. Two words. Be still. Be calm. Be still. And what happened? The sea became like glass. You see, there's a modern application today. The world out there is pretty volatile, friends. It's unpredictable, and it's a violent world. Countless times, senseless shootings. When we turn the TV on this afternoon, we fear that we may hear of another report. The war-torn situation in the Ukraine, the devastation and massive immigrant waves pouring over Europe. The post-pandemic post problems. 
of production having been halted and the supply chain being blocked up, rising crime rate in the wake of the pandemic, soaring inflation and gas prices that have not come down. The most dangerous time, I've told Beverly this several times, the most dangerous time in America, the most dangerous time in America is when you're sitting at that stoplight in the two to three seconds after it turns green. You stop and think about it, folks. We live in a society today where increasingly people are not obeying the law. And that's just an indicator of it. The stock market and its volatility. Six months from January to June, the stock market fell 6,000 points. Well, you know, some of you aren't invested in the stock market, but in one way or the other, many of you are. Why? Because your annuities and your retirements are tied up. And you see, things are volatile. Those are dangerous, unpredictable times out there. Today, Jesus says that I can still overcome that difficult situation. Let not your heart be troubled. If you believe in God, believe also in me. And in John, the 14th chapter, he says two things related to that. I'm going to provide you not only a habitation here, but an eternal home, and you can rest assured of that. And then later when he says that, don't let your heart be troubled, he says, I'm going to bring peace to this world, the only kind of peace that I can bring that the world doesn't bring. He says, I know in the world you will have adversity, but don't worry, I've overcome the world. We sang praise the Lord, praise the Lord, the Almighty. And in that hymn this morning we sang, praise to the Lord who doth prosper thy works and defend thee. Surely his goodness and mercy here daily attend thee. That's out there tomorrow. Ponder anew what the Almighty can do if with his love he befriend thee. You see, in all four of these situations, God still is at work and can overcome difficult situations. I've got two other points. The second one is this. Our thanks, then, should be an expression of humble gratitude and trust. It says give thanks. That's the only imperative in this psalm until you come then to the end. And the other ones are suggestions. They're indirect commands. It means to extend the hands. And if you stop and think about that, we think about extending the hands, receiving, thanksgiving, receiving. But it's more than that. You see, thanksgiving begins with extending the hand in need. Thanksgiving then continues as we stand there anticipating the Lord providing the need. And then thanksgiving then is expressed in praise as we receive the need in our open hands. It involves an acknowledgement of the need to begin with. And then the willingness to ask God to provide for the need. And then our trust in God that he will do so. And the acknowledgement of the need, this thanksgiving, means when we come to the Lord, we should not come self-sufficiently. And, you know, sometimes we don't. Did you, when you listen to the prayer of confession this morning, did you notice that Heather said, sometimes we don't present our petitions to you? That's, that's, that is a, that's an act of, of doubt when we don't present our petitions to God. Sometimes it's an act of self-sufficiency. We think that we don't need the Lord. We can do it on our own. Sometimes it's an arrogant kind of selfishness we don't say it because we know that God's going to provide it because we deserve it. Sometimes we test God, in fact, by not asking, assuming that he's going to meet a need that we haven't expressed. No, in fact, what we must do is we must acknowledge that we are needy beggars. Thanksgiving begins there with great humility and abject poverty and total dependence on God. We must remind ourselves that we would have nothing and be nothing without him. Secondly, it involves a willingness to ask God. In this psalm, several times, four times, it says when they were stricken, they cried out. It means that they literally wailed to God in fear and anguish and danger. 
We live in a self-satisfied society today where we often don't cry out in grief to God to meet our need. Jesus invites us. He says, ask and you'll receive. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be open to you. James chides us. He says, you don't have, why don't you have? You don't have because you haven't asked. There needs to be a willingness. Thanksgiving needs, begins with a willingness to ask God. There are a couple of problems in, our, in today's society, though. We don't have a very thankful and grateful society in which we live because people are too proud. And unfortunately, many Christians are like that. They don't want to be beholden to anyone. I can do it by myself. I can pull myself up by my bootstraps. I'm proud of myself. Look at what I've done. And the other is presumption. It's the opposite. We assume that God's going to give it to us because we're entitled, because we deserve it. Folks, we don't deserve a single thing. But the society out there does not subscribe to that. We need to be willing to ask God. We also need to ask and trust. You see, not asking sometimes is a sign of doubt. Jesus, as he looks at the fig tree, he says, trust God. Do not doubt in your heart, but believe that what you have asked, that it will be happen, that it will happen. Trust God. All things for which you pray and ask, if you believe in your heart and you do not doubt, then believe that you have received them and they will be granted to you. You see, Thanksgiving begins with a deep and abiding trust in God. Genuine thanks, this ordinance of thanks begins and ends with an attitude of deep gratitude toward God. We live in a society today where people are not grateful. There's little sense out there of a need and dependence on God. God's people need to begin with a thankful attitude, and that is a deep act of worship, relying on God completely. You see, what it does is it expresses our appreciation for two things. When we stand open-handed before God and we ask, we stand open-handed before God and waiting to receive, we stand open-handed before God. You see, that is what it means to be thankful. And then when we receive and we praise Him, it expresses appreciation for these two things, that we know that God still cares. He still loves us. He is still a merciful God. And we believe that he still can perform mighty wonders that are inexplicable. Do you believe that? And then finally, our thanks should produce sacrificial giving. That's interesting. In verse number 22, this is the first time that he introduces another kind of indirect command. He says, give thanks, let him give thanks, let him give thanks. And he comes into the very zenith of this psalm, the pinnacle point, the midway point, and then he adds this. Let them also offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of his works with joyful singing. Well, what in the world is a sacrifice of thanksgiving? In fact, it's not really literally what we would consider to be a blood sacrifice. No, it's not a blood sacrifice of atonement for atonement. It's not, a, it's not a sacrifice that results in the eradication of guilt. It's not that at all. In fact, the technical term, a sacrifice of thanksgiving, means that it's an offering. It's an offering that comes from the people of God. When we're thankful before God, we collect an offering that expresses that. We return unto him just a portion of that which he has given. It is a free will offering. That is what he is talking about here. You see, the sacrifice of thanksgiving in the Old Testament in Leviticus 7 was celebrated at the great festal feasts. It was typically done after God had blessed somebody, after they had received healing or some kind of blessing. And it's mentioned in verse number 20 here. He says, and he healed them. 
It's associated with gratitude and praise, with joyful singing, as it says here. It's voluntary. It's not obligatory. What happened with that offering was, unlike the burnt offering that was completely consumed, and unlike some other offerings where the priest kept the meat and helped to feed his family, with this kind of offering then, he returned it to the offerer. He returned it to the family. And they were allowed to eat it and consume it and enjoy it. There was one condition. It had to be consumed before the day was over. And usually there was so much that had to be consumed that that man, that offer, that family could not consume it by himself or themselves. And so it invited them to do what? It invited them to ask their neighbors to come in and their friends to come in and others to come in. We need to eat this before the day is over. In other words, you see, it was an offering that resulted in the blessing of others as well. They shared from the abundance of their offering. When we come before God and we make our offering, we know that it's more than just putting something in the plate. This ordinance of giving thanks, going from thanks to giving, is more than a perfunctory exercise of putting money in the offering plate. It's important. It helps to accomplish the ministries of this church. It helps to accomplish kingdom purposes, but it goes far beyond money. You see, here's where thanks becomes giving. And what kind of giving is it? It says sacrificial giving. A sacrificial thanks. What it means is, folks, God blesses us as we began the message by asking, isn't it possible that he can load us down with so many blessings that it's almost impossible to count them? We have a responsibility then to do what? To go out worshiping God and blessing others. That's what the sacrificial part is. Is your life a channel of blessing? Is the love of God flowing through you? Are you telling the lost of the Savior? Are you ready his service to do? Make me a what? A channel of blessing. Make me a channel of blessing, I pray. My life possessing, my service blessing, make me a channel of blessing today. When we go from thanks to giving, God blesses us in order to bless others. We become worshipful agents as we go out there, daily worshiping Him by giving of ourselves to others. That's the sacrificial part. The challenge for us as we leave today is there are people out there, friends, that are suffering in those four kinds of situations even today. There are people that are walking in the wilderness that don't have enough to eat or to drink. There are people walking in the wilderness, wandering around and don't know which way to go, what's up and what's down. They're living in a society that doesn't even remember what the law is anymore. And we go out as guides into the wilderness. You go out tomorrow in, in, in the workplace and you are a guide to share with others a sense of godly purpose and direction in your life. To set an example by obediently following the way, the truth, and the life. And to provide those that are struggling for their daily needs, and you might help to fill the gap benevolently. Secondly, you go out into the darkness. How many times has Clyde said it, and I've said it, we go out to do what? To punch or drive holes in the darkness. Another way to put it is your lamplighters to dispel the darkness. Your chain breakers. We go out sacrificially to give of ourselves so that we might proclaim the good news of freedom in Christ, to come alongside and to support persons that are struggling with addictions and problems that we cannot imagine, 
to show compassion when somebody is different than we are because they have a different understanding of gender or whatever it is, they have a different uh, idea about abortion or whatever the social issue might be, not to look at them in disdain and look down our nose at them and say, don't you know what the Bible says? We need to model what the Scripture says. And yes, we need to tell them what the Scripture says, but we need to do it with love and compassion, not disdain. Because, friends, many people today have been blinded by the God of this world. They simply don't know better. And so we go out, not as blind guides like the Pharisees, but as guides to draw them out of darkness to the right way. Go out as healers who will encourage and comfort others. Send sick souls riddled with guilt and doubt. Those struggling with emotional problems, go out as healers and encourage and comfort them. And finally, you go out into a dangerous world. God walks with you. Pray for safety as you go out there. Pray for the safety of your thresholds of your homes. Pray for God to guard your steps. But you go out as pilots to guide the way, as storm calmers in the tumultuous seas of life, to show that no matter what happens in your life, you can remain calm and serene because you are steadfastly guarded by the God of peace and his son Jesus Christ. And to reassure others that God is in control. And that's not just a, just a shibboleth. It doesn't mean that they will get exactly what they want. It doesn't mean that they can control God. But God indeed is in control and he can master their difficult circumstances and we can depend on him. We can go out with a serenity that is the stillness of God. And people see it in us and it calms them. Be still, my soul. The Lord is on your side. Bear patiently the cross of grief and pain. Leave to your God to order and provide. In every change, he faithfully will remain. Be still, my soul. Your best, your heavenly friend, through thorny ways, leads to a joyful end. We go from thanks to giving by giving of ourselves. That is one of the gospel ordinances that Jesus gave us. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Gamble Street Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. If you have questions, we would love to speak with you. Please call 817-926-1785 to speak with a minister. If you live in or will be traveling to the Fort Worth area, we would love to have you visit. Gambrel Street Baptist Church has six church goals to reach the lost for Christ, to learn more about Christ, to touch the city through Christ, to train leaders to serve Christ, to embrace the world with Christ, and to build strong families in Christ. Please join us for our next episode.